Welcome to the Pogel Podcast. The Pogel Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogel Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear about what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside of the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Today is our first official episode of the Pogel Podcast, where we have our co-host, Alex Grushow, who is a professor of chemistry at Ryder University and the chair of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry, interview Dr. Richard S. Moog. Moog is a professor in the Department of Chemistry at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He is the executive director of the Pogel Project and the recipient of the 2016 George C. Pimentel Award in Chemical Education from the American Chemical Society. Moog is the co-author of Pogel Materials for General Chemistry and Physical Chemistry, having implemented Pogel learning environments in his courses since 1994. His research interests include the impact of activity structure and team discourse on student learning. Alex and Rick, thanks for being here today. And Alex, I will now pass the baton over to you. Thank you, Matt. Um, so I'm interviewing Rick Moog, who's been the director of the Pogel Project since the beginning. And Rick, you've been a professor at, at FNM since, uh, I believe, 1986, if I did my math right. Um, so let's start off with uh, what drew you as a young physical chemist out of Stanford University to teaching at a small liberal arts college? Uh, thanks, Alex. That's, um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I grew up um, with, a, with a, a mother who was an educator um, and uh, with other educators uh, throughout, especially that side of my, my family. Um, and I always felt like being an educator of some sort was something I wanted to do actually from a relatively early age. And when I finished graduate school and saw what the life experience of faculty members at a place like Stanford was, I, I had a sense that I, that's not the kind of educator that I, that I wanted to be. I found from my undergraduate education at Williams College, which was a small liberal arts college, um, that I liked the interaction that I had with my undergraduate research mentor, with my, the other uh, faculty members at a place like that. And I could see myself playing that, that role, um, being on the other side of that role going forward. So, uh, you know, I, I thought about being a, a teacher of some sort when I entered college. When I was in college, I realized that I wanted to do that at the college level. Um, after graduate school, I realized I didn't want to do it at a, at a research university, and I'd enjoyed my time at, at, at Williams tremendously, and so that's, that's the kind of place I wanted to be. So then after, you know, getting to, you know, that first tenure-track position at FNM, how were your first couple of years teaching? I mean, now that you were on the other side, and, and was it what you actually expected? Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was, it was what I expected. I really looked forward to, uh, imagined that I would be working with, you know, 18 to 22 year olds who were trying to figure out what else they wanted to do, uh, what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives. And that certainly is what, what the experience was like. 
I wanted to develop a close relationship with my students, especially my research students. And that's something that I felt like I was able to do. I think the biggest surprise, and I think this is what any faculty member would say with their first full-time job, is that the amount of work that it took to actually be prepared those first, especially that first year, was unbelievable. I'd been warned by uh, one of my PhD advisors that, that was going to be the case, but I didn't believe him. Um, so that was kind of uh, surprising. And but, but I think for the most part, it was very much the way that I had envisioned it because I'd had the experience from the student side um, at, at, as an undergraduate already. So, so I don't think that was very, I don't think there was a lot, there weren't a lot of big surprises other than it was a lot more work than I ever imagined it could be. So as, as a number of our listeners know, um, I was a student of yours uh, in the pre-Pogel era. I think this was your second year at FNM. Uh, I had this uh, eight o'clock in the morning quantum mechanics course. Uh, and I tell a lot of people that in retrospect, even though there was no Pogel at the time, there was no guided inquiry at the time, there was a hint of Pogel in the way that you manage the class. That is when I look at it in retrospect. But there was a lot of lecturing. There was a lot of derivations on the chalkboard. And I did fall asleep once or twice. We'll just say that. Um, so uh, tell us, you know, like, how did you, you know, what brought about the changes? Yeah. Um, you know, was there one single aha moment? Was it a progression? How did you get from, and we'll, we'll talk more about other think path things along the way, but what sort of from the beginning mm -hmm. were you thinking about this or was it sort of like, oh my God, this, you know, I've been working really hard getting all this together and it's still not working the way I want it to work. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a really, really good question. I, I recently was going through my office and I found my lecture notes from that time period, both the physical chemistry class, the quantum mechanics class I was teaching, and the general chemistry classes I was teaching. And I remember, I mean, I have visions of sitting up late at night working on those notes and trying to think about exactly what examples I was going to use in class. You know, I don't know whether you would agree. I, I felt like I was a pretty natural and effective lecturer. I mean, I think I could organize thoughts in a coherent way. And, you know, and students, you know, in terms of the student response to my performance, which is what it was, um, they were generally positive. But I think for me, where, where the, the impetus to think about change came from was from my experience in general chemistry. You know, at FNM, at that time and still to this day, the people who were the students are, are, not, are, are not randomly chosen from the high school student body, as it were. I mean, the people who come to FNM are very strong students and, and are bright people and are capable. And what I, what I kept encountering were, were students who just didn't get it, who just weren't doing very well, didn't seem to grasp what was going on, and it wasn't because they weren't trying. And it just seemed to me that the vast, vast, vast majority of students at Franklin and Marshall College ought to be able to successfully complete the first semester of general chemistry, that there's nothing intrinsically difficult, so difficult about it, that a bright, motivated, capable student couldn't successfully complete the course. It didn't mean that everybody was going to earn 100% on all the exams, but that people should be able to do that. 
And it just wasn't the case. And I couldn't figure out what the problem was. Um, and I didn't believe as some of my colleagues in the institution and across the country believed that the problem was the students, right? That the, somehow the students weren't either smart enough or working hard enough or doing enough. It, that might be true that they weren't working hard enough or doing enough, problem, uh, uh, you know, enough homework, but that that wasn't a reason that people weren't being successful. That there was something else just about the nature of what we were doing or how we were doing it, which was actually a barrier to student success. So I did a number of things. I think the, the, the first significant thing that I remember is going to an, one of these old NSF Chautauqua conferences that went on my junior faculty leave, where there was discussion about um, effective ways of, of improving performance of minority students um, in math in particular. And it was a conference in which some, uh, in which some people, with which Yuri Treisman spoke about his experience in calculus, first as a graduate student at Berkeley and then at the University of, programs at the University of Texas, where having students work, uh, you know, having minority students work in sort of what they called honors, you know, like recitation sections outside of class, um, led to tremendous uh, uh, performance gains for those students and kind of this combination of social interaction with, uh, with, with learning. And it occurred to me that since I have classes in my general chemistry class of only 24 students, that that's something I could do every day. It didn't have to be in a recitation section like it was at Berkeley or Texas, but it was something that you know, I could just do in class. And so I started thinking about ways to engage students in class. I, I read an article in, in J. Kim Ed um, that's, you know, that sort of proposed this idea that a lot of times lecturers decide ahead of time what they're going to talk about, and they choose things that most of the students don't need to hear a lecture about, right? That, that they decide to lecture on something, but all the students already like, got that. Um, and so I decided to try implementing having students come to class and just asking me questions, right? That that would be the basis for what I talk about. Because once I taught the course a couple times, you know, I could deal with whatever questions came up and I'd have examples ready from my lecture notes or whatever. So I was just trying these different kinds of things. And then in the spring of, so that's, that's, what, that's what motivated me. And then I can't remember the details of how we decided to do this, but then in the spring of 1994, John Farrell and I decided to go to this one particular workshop led by Dan Apple of Pacific Crest, uh, which at that time was an educational software company, where kind of the underpinnings and basis for what became Pogol were, were, were kind of shown to us. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, so some of the other things that I know about from the development of the, the Pogol project was uh, there was uh, this one group that was referred to as MADCAP. Uh -huh. uh, I think it was the Middle Atlantic Discovery Chemistry Project. Did I get that right? That is correct. Yeah. So I, I remember going to one of these meetings. I believe it was at F&M. Uh -huh. um, and so if I recall, this was sort of like a group uh, working on creating discovery-based experiments. Yes. Um, and this was all just chemists. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about this sure. group of people? Sure. And, and how they got connected. Oh yeah, yeah, this is, a, this is a really good story, I think. Um, 
So, uh, and it's, and it's going to seem as though I'm not starting there, but this is all, this context is actually really important. So in the late eighties, um, the, the division of chemical education of the American chemical society decided that it was time for some reform in the general chemistry curriculum. Um, that, you know, again, outcomes were not nationally, were not what people were hoping for in terms of student success. So a, a, a kind of a blue ribbon panel of people was brought together to address this problem, sort of understand what's happening in general chemistry in the late 80s um, and come up with some proposals. And it turned out that um, my colleague and Alex, you know, your research mentor, Jim Spencer, ended up being the chair of that committee, that national committee, the faculty member from Franklin and Marshall College. So one of the people that he met as part of that experience was Maury Ditzler, who at that time was a chemist at the College of the Holy Cross. And at Holy Cross in the mid 80s, they were developing something in a, 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 an educational approach called discovery chemistry, where um, many, many people now in the chemistry education community are aware of what's referred to as the pennies experiment. Um, that's an ex that's a experiment in which students measure the mass of pennies that are minted at, in different years. They make predictions of how the mass of the penny will depend upon what year it was minted. And some students think that the older the penny is, the heavier it will be because it's collected dirt. And some people think that the older the penny is, the lighter it will be because some of the copper is worn away. Well, it turns out that in 1982, the composition of copper, of, excuse me, the composition of pennies changed. And so there's essentially a discontinuity in the mass of pennies as a function of minting date, because in 1982, they went to a zinc core. And so the pennies had a different mass than when they were all copper. In any case, this experiment, which was really an introduction to you know, sort of hypothesis testing, was developed at, at Holy Cross as part of their discovery chemistry project or program. And what they did in both general chemistry and then later in organic and a little bit in physical chemistry is use laboratory experiments to motivate the lecture discussion later in the week. So all the students had lab on Monday and Tuesday, I think. And then when they had class on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, they would use the results that they did in lab to generate the discussion. So I went, I, I met, so Jim uh, invited me to, or, or encouraged me to go to a meeting that Holy Cross was having related to disseminating their, this, this discovery chemistry approach as a, as a pedagogical approach in, in, the, in, the, in the curriculum. And so I went there and I met Maury Ditzler and a lot of his colleagues at Holy Cross, and that was really interesting. Um, and then there were some other people in sort of the middle Atlantic region who had heard about this and were interested. And so the year of my first sabbatical, there was a meeting that was held at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, where a group of people from Elizabethtown and FNM and some other colleges in the region got together to talk about whether we could do something as a consortium to implement these kind of inquiry-oriented laboratories that, that Holy Cross had been leading the way on. And this was, it must have been 92, 93. I was on sabbatical and I'm at this meeting and people are talking about it. And it, I think it was in the early part of the spring semester and Jim is there and I'm there 
and people are saying, yeah, we should do this. Somebody should write a research proposal, a grant proposal to try to get funding to create this consortium of people who will then try to develop these experiments. And Jim says, well, Rick's on sabbatical. He doesn't have much to do this spring. Why don't we have him write the grant proposal? Um, and so... That, that, that sounds like something that Jim would say That to sounds like something everybody. that Jim, my wonderful friend, Jim, Jim Spencer, would do. I, I was not smart <laughs> enough at that time to realize that that's what the plan would be. And it kept happening over and over again. So I ended up writing a grant proposal. And I can't remember, I mean, I could look it up. I can't remember exactly what the order of things was. I think we submitted something to NSF and I don't remember what the name of the program was at that time that didn't get funded. But then we submitted essentially the same proposal a year later to, to FIPSI, the Fund for the Improvement of Post-Secondary Education run out of the Department of Education. And that proposal was funded. And so we got money to um, provide some stipends to faculty members and students during summers to develop inquiry laboratory, you know, inquiry oriented laboratory experiments. And our, our good friend and colleague, Frank Cregan, who's an organic chemist, who was an organic chemist, he's now emeritus at, at Washington College, really took the lead in terms of developing organic chemistry experiment, experiments. And it also uh, resulted in a lot of activity in the Middle Atlantic region of developing general chemistry experiments. They're kind of inquiry oriented. And for many, many years afterwards, I don't know, at least until 2010 or so, the MADCAP, as it was referred to, the Middle Atlantic Discovery Chemistry Project, had a meeting every year where first just the people in the project attended, but later we invited people from around the region to come. And it was kind of a little one or two day professional development experiment experience talking about inquiry-oriented laboratory and then later more, just more generally inquiry-oriented other stuff. I, will, I want to mention just one other thing about this, even though I realize this is a long answer to this question. And because it actually is... Do you, you, you ever give short answers? No, I can't give short so. answers. <laughs> the other thing I want to say about this is that it turns out that the person who was the program officer at FIPSI that was in charge of our grant was a woman by the name of Joan Stromanis. And... Many people who are familiar with the Pogo project will recognize not necessarily the name Joan, but the name Stramanis, because Joan Stramanis is the mother of Andre Stramanis, who then, through a, a different series of events, became somebody that I met while he was a, while he was a graduate student at Stanford, who got very interested and has been and was one of the PIs on the original Pogo project grant from the NSF and you know, author of organic chemistry and co-author of calculus uh, materials for the project. So it is kind of interesting how all of these things interconnect. Yeah, and, and I, I realize as you're telling the story about the experiment at Holy Cross, you've given away the answer to the penny experiment for so many people. So oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. Nobody, <laughs> no students should be listening to this. Don't, don't pay any attention to what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. So from from Madcap, uh, if I if I you know get my dots to connect here, the next sort of step uh, that you got involved with was this new traditions project. Yes. Um, and uh, now be honest here. At, at some point along the way, from Madcap to new traditions, which I want to hear a little bit about, um, 
were you ever thinking that we were going to, you know, develop this community of uh, reflective educators? No, it still hasn't crossed my mind that that's what we're doing. No, <laughs> until maybe recently, I've never thought ahead very far. It's just that I've always been interested in figuring out what's going to help my students be successful in doing the kind of things that I'm trying to get them to do. And I think that, that uh, you know, helping other members of the community help uh, think about how to achieve, better achieve the goals they have for their students in their classrooms and laboratories is something that I'm, I've been interested in. And not just specifically that, but just the, the community aspect of being in academia, I think is, is important to me and developing relationships with people um, uh, that everyone finds value in, I think is important. So no, I didn't, when we did MADCAP, like I said, Jim said, you should write the grant proposal. I said, okay, I'll write the grant proposal. And then of course, the person who writes the grant proposal ends up in charge. Um, so I kind of just said, all right, well now I guess I'm in charge of this. And then sort of uh, with new traditions, uh, it was different. That, that grew out of a, an NSF effort to do systemic change based on the work that the task force that Jim Spencer had been a leader of their recommendations. NSF decided to fund pro big projects to try to effect the kind of change that was recommended. And so this project was based at the University of Wisconsin and through, it was centered there, but there were a bunch of other components to it and the sort of the work we were doing at FNM with this kind of what was that time called lectureless chemistry um, was just a component of that of that project. So again, I got into that through Jim uh, Spencer, who had connections with the people with people at Wisconsin. Um, and it was a very interesting time for us because what that project enabled to ha happen was for us to more broadly disseminate the ideas and the materials that John Farrell and I had produced in general chemistry and that John and Jim Spencer and I had produced in uh, physical chemistry, it enabled us to disseminate those more widely because the New Traditions Project was doing workshops all over the country. So then, so we get to this watershed moment in 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. when the, we get the first big national dissemination grant from the NSF. Um, now, for those, some people know, I was a program officer at NSF when this award was made, and I had to recuse myself from all the conversations and negotiations uh, to avoid conflict of interest. But I got to tell you, you know, during that time, I had a few people in the division ask me, you know, on the side, what on earth is this Poljul thing all about? <laughs> um, and so, can you tell us a little bit about how this acronym was adopted? Where did it come from? Gosh, well. To continue listening to our conversation with Rick Moog, please join us for the second part of this episode, where Alex and Rick will talk about the origins of the Pogel acronym and the growth of the Pogel community.